At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. You know, I was talking with one of our life groups last weekend, and as we were talking, um, we kind of brought up how when, you know, your little boy or little girl, you know what it feels like to get to get busted for something, right? To get caught, you, you all know that feeling. And maybe it's something you did, maybe it's like, or didn't do, like I didn't take out the trash, I didn't feed the dog, I, my room is messy, I told a lie. Like whatever the thing is, you know how like you get defensive, right? Now some of you are like, well I don't get defensive, I just shut down, like I just whoop, like a little turtle in a shell, that's what I do. I'm just gonna lock it down, I'm gonna lock everything real tight, I show no emotion, I'm just gonna stare at you. You know, maybe that's you, maybe you get real angry, then you're ready to fight, you know, you're just ready to go and you're screaming, it's not fair, and you know, they, do you understand me, young man? Do you understand me, young woman? No, I don't understand you, you know, at least in your head you're saying that. And probably not out your mouth, but you're probably thinking it, you know, when you were little. Maybe that's what you did. Sometimes we want to blame shift. Like, don't look at, I know you said I did this thing that I know I did, but what I'm going to do is look at that, look at, and what we try to blame shift a little bit, we misdirect, or maybe it's not stuff you've done, maybe it's stuff you didn't do. Like, anyone else have that little brother, that little sister, mine was a little brother, and uh, I wouldn't even touch him, he'd just start screaming, He'd start screaming for mom and dad, stop, don't hit me. And I'm like, I didn't touch you, mom. And then I'm in trouble, didn't even touch him. Like anyone else have that happen? Come on now, I cannot be the only one. And in fact, my brother laughs about it today. He thinks it's real funny today. He's like, oh, I got jokes. You know, that's him today. The thing is, as you get older, as you turn into a teen, as you turn into an adult, we don't really change a whole lot when it comes to being confronted on things, do we? We get confronted and so we get defensive. We get confronted and uh, we get mad. We get confronted, we shut down. We get confronted, we blame shift. But here's the thing. The thing is these moments of confrontation can change everything for us when we approach it with a humble posture. When you come with a humble posture, this has the ability to change the trajectory of everything with renewal in our lives. We're starting a brand new sermon series today called Confessions. This sermon series is going to take us right up to Holy Week. Uh, we're going to be focused in on Psalm 51, but for today we need to set the scene. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Most of it's going to be in chapter 12, but we're going to start in chapter 11. Let me set the stage. Up to this point, David has sent his army off to war. Now, David should be with his army at war. That's how he's done everything up to this point in his life. He's been with his mighty men anytime they were fighting. But this time, he's like, well, I'm the king. And I'm getting used to this king stuff. So y'all go on with your bad selves. You go over there. I'm going to stay in my palace. And it's as he's standing in his palace that he looks out across the palace and he sees this woman. And she's beautiful. Can't take his eyes off of her. Now he's the king, so he doesn't take his eyes off of her. He could. He could turn around. I mean, he's got plenty in his palace to keep him occupied, but he doesn't take his eyes off of her. He stays there, and he watches as she's bathing in the privacy of her own home. Then David does the unthinkable. He sends 
a messenger to go and retrieve her. He's the king, so whatever he says, go and get that. They go and get that. And so they go and they bring her back to him. It's not long after that that he receives notice from a messenger that Bathsheba is pregnant. Well, David goes into emergency problem-solving mode. She's pregnant, but see, the thing is, she's married to one of King David's mighty men, Uriah. She's already married, so he's like, I've got this plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to call him back from the battle. He's going to be called back. We'll leave everyone fighting because we can't afford to give up this entire battle, but we'll call Uriah back. He'll be with his wife. Then as she's pregnant, it's going to be like, oh, guess what, Uriah, we're pregnant. What a great plan this is. The problem is Uriah is this man of integrity. So he gets back and he's like, no, that's not the way it works. The king called me back, so I'm not going to dishonor the king by being with my wife. I'm not going to do that. And all the rest of my brothers in arms, like they're still fighting. Like I I can't just come back and act like I'm on vacation. Like, I'm, I'm on business. This is work. I'm, I'm not going to dishonor the men. I'm not going to dishonor the king in that way. And so he heads back to the battle, and so David has to come up with another plan. He's like, oh, I, I got a plan. Here's my plan. I'm going to put him on the front lines of the battle, and then I'm going to withdraw the troops, except he's going to be caught there fighting an entire army all by himself. He'll be killed yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. Is that murder? I don't know if that's murder or not, you know, but he'll die in battle. He'll be victorious and valiant and all that kind of stuff. You know, he'll have this great name, which will seem victorious anyway. And, but she's going to go into mourning. And after that time of mourning, then what's going to happen is I will call her to the palace where I'll marry her. She'll have a child. She can become part of my harem and live happily ever after. This is a great plan. And everything is going just how King David scripted. You see, they did send Uriah to the front lines of the battle. And the troops were called to pull back, leaving Uriah exposed. Can you imagine how difficult this would have been for all the rest of the mighty men? This is their brother that they fight side by side with. And they're told they have to pull back and leave him there. So he does get killed. Is it murder? Does he die in war? You've got to figure out what you want to say about that. But he is exposed and he is killed because of the order of King David. Bathsheba does go into a time of mourning. That's where we're going to pick up. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says, And when the mourning was over, because she's sad that her husband was killed in battle, she's, she's grieving the fact that her husband has died. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So it seems like, man, David is so smart, right? Look how this is working out just like he planned. But look at the rest of the verse. The very end says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It brings us to our big idea that the Lord confronts our sin so we can experience renewal. The Lord confront, why does the Lord confront though? Because we don't handle that well. You don't like confronted. I don't like confronted. We already know this. So why doesn't the Lord let us experience renewal by illumination, right? We like illumination. That's when you get all alone with just the Lord in your prayer closet and you're praying and you're reading the Bible and you read something. They're like, man, I got to change my life to look more like that. And so we experience renewal strictly from this enlightenment from the Holy Spirit. That happens, doesn't it? That happens in our lives, but sometimes there's confronting that has to happen. Well, how does that work? What does that look like? Move over to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
Chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse number five. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now in chapter 11, David does a lot of sending. He sends for the messenger. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah. He's 11 times, 11 times in chapter 11, David is sending. 11 different times. In chapter 12, God is the one who sends. In chapter 12, God sends Nathan. Nathan comes very gently at first in verses 1 through 4, very gently to offer some correction in an indirect way with this story. Now, there's theologians who debate this. Some will say this is a parable. Some will say, okay, this wasn't real life. This was Nathan saying, you know, David, here's a story. Let me tell you about the little boy who cried wolf. You know, it's like that kind of a story. And other theologians say, no, more than likely, Nathan is bringing a story to King David of something that's actually happening in the kingdom. Like this is something that's being dealt with where there's this rich man and there's this poor man and David as king needs to rule on it because he's the king. I don't think it really matters. Like, I don't think it matters. Is it a parable or is this something that actually was happening? But here's the story. Nathan says there's this, there's this man. He's a poor man. He, he doesn't really have anything, but he gets enough money together to buy one lamb. He buys one lamb. On the other hand, there's this rich man. The rich man, he has all these, these sheep. He has this flock. He's got all of it. And the rich man has this guest coming, this traveler who's coming. Then he looks at all everything he has. He's like, I, I don't want to use that. That's mine. Hey, there's one over there. I, I'm going to take that one. So he goes to this poor man. He takes his one sheep and he says, I'm going to eat this one, which is what he does. He kills that one. He eats that one. He serves it to the traveler. David at this point does not realize this is a finger being pointed at him. Doesn't get it at all. In fact, in verse five, look at verse five again. He says, as the Lord lives, I mean, this rich man deserves death. He's going back to what's laid out in Exodus 22, 1, because this man had no pity. This rich man, he had no pity. Did, did David have pity, though? David didn't have pity, did he? He didn't have pity for his mighty men, who he asked, like, I want you to intentionally let your brother die. He didn't have pity for them. He didn't have pity for Uriah when he went and took Bathsheba. He didn't have pity for Bathsheba when he had Uriah killed. He didn't have pity for anyone. He wanted what he wanted. And in that, he was blind to this whole story. Now, we know what it feels like, right, that, that blindness. We talked about this illustration before. I just feel like it just fits really, really well here. Some of you, you were in performing arts back in high school. 
You know, you were on a dance team, you were in a marching band, something like that. Some of you played sports, uh, you, you, whatever your sport was, but you know what it is to break down film. You know what it is to sit in a film room. For those of you who don't know what the film room is like, it's brutal. Y'all, it's, it is rough. It's no joke. It's not, I'm going to sit there and eat popcorn and laugh as I'm watching the highlights of the game. That is not what watching film is. Like, that's not breaking down film. When you break down film, you're sitting there, and the coach is going to say, hey, on that play, which foot did you step with? Well, I stepped with my right foot. Are you sure? Yeah, I always step with my right foot. We practiced it a thousand times. Or they'll ask you on that dance routine, or they're going to ask you that marching band thing. Did you do it? Yeah, that's what I did. Like, I did it. It was perfect. It's just like we rehearsed it. Mm-hmm. And then you break down film, and you go frame by frame. You slow it way way down because the eye in the sky doesn't lie does it like that camera is going to see everything you do and that's when the coach says I thought you stepped with your right foot looks an awful lot like your left one to me well no it was I think it was my I I I don't know what happened anymore right but when you're in the middle of the game everything's happening so fast right like you think you know what you're doing and all of a sudden it's like look where your hands are look where your head went look where your foot went look what you did and and all of a sudden you're having to really work through what you're really doing life is the same way we get going through life at such a rapid pace that you think you're doing one thing because you're blind to what you're doing in so many areas that's why you need a life group Your life group is where you have brothers and sisters around you who are walking with you through this, and they're slowing some things down for you. You need a Nathan in your life. Let me say that again, because this is big. You you need a Nathan in your life. Now, quick time out. You don't get to be Nathan for the whole church. Let me just say that. Like, you don't. That's not your job. That's not a volunteer position at the church, meaning you don't get to say, I'm going to go tell you and you and you and you. I watch you on Facebook, you and you and you and your Instagram, you and you and you. And I saw you driving down the highway, you and you and you and you in that drop-off line at the school, mm-hmm, and you and you and you. You don't get to do that to go correct everyone in the whole church. That, that's not your job. But what you do need is you do need those people who are close with you. In fact, I just want to ask that. Just answer in your heart. Who's the Nathan in your life? Who is the Nathan in your life? And I'm going to ask you to add one caveat to that besides your significant other. Besides your significant other, who do you have that's close enough in relationship that can look at you eye to eye and challenge you? Because David had someone. The king had someone. He had Nathan who could look him in the eye and challenge him in some things. Who does that for you? And and then when you hear the challenge, what do you do with that? When you're confronted, what do you do you get mad at them? Do you do you misdirect? Do you make excuses? I mean, what, what do you do? Or do you come with a humble heart and posture and do you receive it and course correct to the Lord? What what do you do with that? And now let me ask it another way. Who are you and Nathan for? Because I'm just going to tell you, I think this is hard for us in today's church. I think this is so hard for us. I think that for many of you, just because I feel like I, I, I know so many of you, I feel like if someone came to you and offered truth, you would be receptive to it. I do. I feel like for a lot of you, you would soften and you would receive it. But I feel like when I say, will you do the same thing for them? Mm, yeah, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. 
And I'm not talking about strangers. I'm talking about people you're really tight with. And if we got down to the heart of it, like seriously, why will you not challenge that person? Well, here's why I don't want to lose relationship. I'm scared. Don't want to lose relationship with them. I don't want to cause a fight. I don't want them to get mad at me. I don't want them, I don't want them to leave. And so then all of a sudden we're afraid to press into those challenging places. And yet right now, if you look at your own life, isn't it true that we have areas that we don't want to talk about? You see what we want to do? Again, we make excuses. I think what we do with our own sins sometimes is we want to look at King David and we want to say, well, I don't have the sin of King David. How about that? I mean, I feel good about this sermon today. I feel real good because I haven't killed anyone all day. Like, I have not done that. That is not something I'm guilty of. Haven't been looking out my window being a creeper. Haven't done that. I haven't, haven't invited anyone's spouse over. Like, that's not what I'm doing. So I, what I think we do is we want to say, I don't have the sin of King David, and therefore I'm okay. And yet the whole time, you've got some people in your life where if you had slowed down and you would listen, just like the film room, they're going to tell you, hey, you've got some places in your life that you may need to examine. Like you know, you know that you don't have the power to send someone to heaven or hell, that's not yours, but there is that rock of judgment that you continue to carry around. Why are you doing that? You're not adding a single day to your life, why, why are you doing that? You're, you're not helping them, why, why? you need to let that go. Are you open to the Nathan in your life? And are you intentional with telling them the truth so that we can continue together to experience renewal? Let's keep going. Verse number seven. Nathan said to David, you're the man. And I gotta tell you, I tried 20 different ways to figure out how to say this without it sounding like Nathan's high-fiving David, being like, you know, you're the king, you're the man. And because it's not what he's saying. He's saying that rich man in the story that you just said is deserving of death, you're that man. That's you. That's describing you in this story. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword of taking his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with the wives in the sight of the son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Can you sense the tension in this moment? The incredible tension after David is so appalled that someone would take advantage of someone in his kingdom like that that someone would take advantage of this poor man. He is so angry. And that's where Nathan just says, David, that's you. And notice that when he says that's you, the first thing that he talks about isn't murder. The first thing that he talks about isn't adultery. That's not the first thing he talks about. The first thing he talks about is David's sin being a matter of unbelief in God's character. 
That's the first thing he calls into question. It's seeing himself as king instead of God and just taking whatever he wants. Now, this has some serious weight to it. This has some incredible weight because God had given David everything. God had literally given David everything. Verse 7 and 8, you see the Lord saying, and and David, I gave you what you needed. I gave you so much more, but I would have given you more than that. I would have given you even more than that, but it didn't matter to you in that moment. That's not even what mattered. And then God gives us judgment. Violence and the sword would be the culture of David's family. Internal conflict, shame. His wives will be taken. David is a man after God's own heart, but David so missed the mark here. He so missed the mark. Do any of you have um, cats at home that are like outdoor-only cats, like they catch mice and live in the barn and stuff, raise their hands? Like, I have a cat that only lives outside. Two, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, not so many, six in this whole room. Okay, that's cool. Imagine with me then. Imagine with me that you know a person with a cat that's an outdoor only cat like. There's a family in my life group that I'm not going to mention by name because they host my life group, but I'm not gonna say the name of the Shaners. I'm not gonna say their name and, um, because they went to the first service, so I can call it out now. It's totally okay. But in their garage, they had this big wooden box thing with a screen on top and this heat lamp. And there's two little orange kittens in there, like little cuddly, fluffy orange kittens. And they said to everyone in the life group, oh, these are going to be outdoor cats. Like, they're going to catch mice, and they're going to they're gonna be outdoor cats. And this morning, they told me, and the cats were in the house, and we were just playing with them. And I was like, mm-hmm. Yup, they're outdoor cats. I'm sure they are. They're going to be outdoor cats, which is what they should be, right? They should grow up to be strong, ferocious, feline, mouse-catching cats. That's what they should be. We all know cats belong outdoors, not indoors. That's not where cats, cats are bad. We know cats are bad. We all know that. Now, some of you, you're scowling at me right now, which means you like cats. And, um, That's all right. You can like cats, but what that tells me about you is you have a cat that likes you. (laughs) Isn't that how cats work? Like, you cannot tell a cat, I just want you to be friendly to everybody, like a poodle. Like, they're not going to do that. They're not just going to, like, everybody's my best friend, my very, very best friend. That's not how cats work. Cats will decide who they're going to like and who they're not going to like. So the fact that your cat decided to like you, you love that. Come on now, you do. You love that your cat loves you and hates everybody else because that's how they do. And when they decide they don't like anyone else, like they're serious about it. And so someone will come over to the house, happens every time, right? And they're gonna look at your cat and, and they're so weird about it, right? Like we want like little kids to like us. We want cats to like us. We want, and they just will decide they don't. And so you're gonna look at the cat and you're gonna, oh, hi, kitty, kitty, kitty. Like that's not gonna freak them out. Like, and you're gonna start to do the waddle up to the cat and the cat is gonna get real low to the ground. You know what they do, right? And that tail is gonna start to like, whew, whew, whew. you know what their tail does? Whips back and forth. And those eyes, the eyes will get real squinty right? They're going to do that. In my mind, they wrinkle their nose. I don't know if they do that or not, but in my mind, they do. The hair on their backs and the ears, they pin those ears back, and then they get this sound. <laughs> and still, there are some people who just don't get it, do they? And they're going to reach out, oh, hi, kitty, kitty, and, they're going to, and what's that cat going to do? Rip your arm right off. That's what they're going to do. You're going to have so many marks up. And can I just tell you, you were dumb, so you deserve it. 
You were so dumb. Like that cat told you. That cat did everything to warn you. Every warning sign that a cat has, that cat was screaming to you, don't touch me. You need to stay away. I will tear your arm right off. I will. And yet you reached down, but that's what King David did. King David had every warning and he kept moving forward. He kept advancing. He kept, and we do the same thing. Come on. We do the same thing. We, we like to make levels of sin. We do. We like to say, well, my sin's not King David's sin, so that's cool. But we're told to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And so for you, maybe, maybe yours is going to be more in the area of idolatry than it is anything else. Maybe you're looking at the political system right now, and your hope is so tied up into which party wins the next election. And there's something in you that says, well, if this party wins, then the country can be restored. But if this party wins, then we're doomed. Maybe that's where you're at. Your hope and faith is in your politics, not your Lord. And maybe for you, your idolatry is your children. Man, I'm telling you, I see it all the time that we elevate our kids above everything else in our lives, including the Lord. I mean, we just talk about that stone, the ability to forgive, and how so many of us, we, we don't have that. Maybe for you, it's generosity. It's in the area of finance. Maybe that's where your thing is, and you're holding on to it, thinking that the Lord wants what's in your hand, but he doesn't. He wants your heart, not what's in your hand. But the whole time, you're making excuses. We're good at excuses, and we say things like, well, you just don't know how I grew up. And again, we want to blame shit. We want to blame someone else for our own ability to follow the Lord or not follow the Lord. And so we come up with all these excuses of why we're not doing it. Or maybe for yours, it's the, the codependent nature of what we have with social media today. Man, I guarantee you've seen it. Now, the person, they, they've got to post this and they've got to have this and they're watching and they're wanting to see how many people are viewing my things and liking my things. And if that person watched it but didn't like it, what does that mean? And all of a sudden, our identity is tied up in what everyone else thinks about us and not what the Lord thinks about us. You see, I think sometimes we get these warnings in life and we ignore warnings no different than reaching down to grab that cat. It's no different, and yet the Lord is providing a way of renewal. He's providing it today. He is giving a way for us to experience complete and total renewal in him. Let's finish up in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I send against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So David's response is simple, man, but it's honest. I've sinned against the Lord, which a little bit causes me to pause. Okay, so sometimes I won't be a Nathan in everybody's life, just so you know. That's what we see, though, happening right here is this scene that I would want to press in with David because he says, I've sinned against the Lord. I'm like, oh, you did murder someone. You know that, right? So what about Bathsheba? What about what you did to her? What about what you did to the mighty man? What about what you did to the people of Israel? What about, I mean, I would want to keep Bathsheba. Can she even consent? There's another question. When the king called her to him, does she even have the ability to consent to that? Or because of his power and because of his authority, is this just a really grotesque situation no matter what? Because it, I mean, that, those are debates we can have regardless. It's sin, isn't it? But notice where he says his first sin is. My sin is against the Lord. Now go back. What did David say? What did David say should happen to that rich man? 
He said he should pay back fourfold and he should do what? He should, he should die. He should pay for this sin with his very life. He was just pointed out as, David, you are that man. So as king, he knows what he deserves, doesn't he? He knows in this moment, I, because of my sin, I am deserving of death. That's what I'm deserving of. And so here was the response of Nathan. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You see this incredible place of renewal, this incredible place of hope. Yeah, God is a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy at the same time. In fact, this phrase, put away, is awesome here. It literally means to pass over. Let's camp here a second because this is powerful. It means to pass over. To put away means to pass over. That illustration had to do with lambs, didn't it? Had to do with sheep. You know where David's mind would have gone? David's mind would have gone back to the Exodus. In the Exodus, there were 10 plagues on Egypt. Nine had already happened where Moses had continually gone and said, hey, Pharaoh, you need to set my people free. And Pharaoh kept saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Pharaoh, you need to set my people free. No, it's not going to happen. Out of 10 plagues, nine had already taken place. And to set up the 10th, Exodus chapter 11, verses four through six says this. It says, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, Who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as never has been nor ever will be again. So the Hebrew people are instructed. They're told to take a lamb. Everyone take a lamb. Let the lamb live in your home for four days. On the fourth day, you're going to sacrifice the lamb. You know what a sacrifice is, right? A sacrifice means I should be there, I should be in that place. But this lamb is going to be sacrificed and said, this lamb is going to take my place. Because the Lord has said that the 10th plague, which is for everyone in Egypt, including the slave girl, for everyone, that firstborn will die. But the Lord says there's going to be a way out. You see, you're going to sacrifice this lamb, take the blood, and cover the doorpost of your home. Exodus 12, 12 says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, our God is a God of justice, but he is also a God of love who provides. And he is providing in such a powerful way. Now for you and me, we know that Romans 3 tells us the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every last one of us. The penalty for our sin is no different than the penalty for David's sin. But you see, it's not a lamb that's going to live with us for four days that's going to pay for that sin. It's the perfect, spotless lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we are set free. Listen, how Exodus 34, 6 goes. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. You see, the sin and I, the sin that you and I carry is one that's paid for by the blood of the Lamb. 
not because of anything you've done, not because of anything I've done. We experience renewal in him. Not because all of a sudden you've done a good enough job of saying, I'm not going to do that thing anymore. Yeah, we want to be holy because he is holy. But the calling for renewal is when we continue to bring our lives into alignment with his. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, my hope is that today is your day. You see, through faith in Christ, you can experience the ultimate renewal today. But for some of you, you are experienced that. And it's that reminder of being a Nathan and receiving the Nathan in your life. My hope is that we continue to keep our eyes open to the fact that we do this together. That you and I are walking out our faith in community with one another. To have the boldness and the love to speak truth. To have the humbleness to receive it when others are speaking it into you. Father, we do praise you. And we thank you for who you are and for the great things that you've done. You're a mighty God who works wonders. You're the one who continues to provide a way when there seems to be no way. So Lord, I pray for my brothers or sisters that may be entangled in sin right now. That with eyes focused on the author and perfecter of our faith, Lord, they cling to the renewal that we can have in Christ Jesus. As we sang just a little bit ago, we're no longer slaves to sin because we're children of God. And Lord, we pray that you are so richly glorified in that. I do pray for those in this room that maybe they never surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus, that this is the moment that they just say, I believe. I believe that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he lived again for the forgiveness of sins. That he went to the cross as the perfect substitute in my place. Lord, we are so grateful for the love that you have for us. I do pray for them to be able to say, this is the day I surrender all. Lord, I do pray for humble hearts. That when confronted, we're open to the teaching of your word. I pray for boldness and continue to speak truth to those that we love. Lord, I pray that you're glorified through all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.